Hello, everyone, and welcome to Irenacast. This week, we are not going to have a typical episode in light of the events that happen in Orlando. Uh, all of us here, as well as I'm sure many of you listening, are pretty shaken and upset or immensely sad about the, the events that happened and perhaps are still kind of trying to come to terms with how you view it and all the uh, all the stuff that comes up as a result of, uh, of an event like this. And um, we thought it would be appropriate to kind of give space for some of that stuff, but also move beyond that into hopefully something that gives us hope and gives us a chance and an opportunity to uh, rebuild a little bit our own selves and see ourselves in the bigger picture and how we can move forward and how we can maybe even help others move forward. And with that, we have with us today a guest. Uh, unfortunately, Alan couldn't join us for this recording. Mona, why don't you go ahead and introduce our guest? Sure. So I am thrilled to introduce to all of you my friend Bentley. And Bentley and I have been good friends for several years now. We met in San Francisco doing some training um, for ministry and theology stuff. And Bentley now is the chaplain at San Francisco UCSF in San Francisco. San Francisco Medical. And I promised Bentley that I wouldn't say anything super nice about him because I don't want to embarrass him, but just know that that's my inclination. Um, but Bentley has been there for me during some incredibly difficult times in my own life and uh, there for many, many others in our community, as well as a professional chaplain. And Bentley hails from Orlando. So this is incredibly um, almost, I think, divine that we've been talking about having Bentley on the show for such a long time and and we're able to have him for this week. So Bentley, welcome to the show. Uh, th- thanks, Mona. And thank you, Jeff. And hello, IrenaCast. Um, yeah, it's um, when we're up against talking about stuff that is just so horrifically tragic, um, our words begin to fail us. I know for myself, I, I'm grieving and probably will be for a while. Talked to a good friend, a colleague who's a, ch- a hospice chaplain in the East Bay, which is like sort of the Oakland, Berkeley area. Just reached out to him and asked him how he was doing. Um, he is a gay man. And he was like, you know, you're the first non-queer male to ask how I was doing. I think a lot of us are grieving right now. And grief looks like a lot of things. Um, fogginess of head, fogginess of thinking. So that's why it's hard to get the right words. Trouble sleeping, but wanting to sleep all the time. Short temper, wanting to disconnect, but also at the same time feeling a compulsion to know more. Um, All of these are normal. Um, There is no one right way to grieve. And so I'm grateful for this time to be with you and sort of begin processing my own grief for a town that I know and love. Um, I was born in Orlando, um, raised there. My high school, um, Boone High School, is a half mile down the street from Pulse Nightclub. I can remember what Pulse was in different incarnations. It used to be Lorenzo's, uh, an Italian restaurant that had great breadsticks. And then it was Dante's, which had great, featured great um, local bands. And a good friend of mine, another Boone grad, was the manager there for a while. And, and then it became Pulse. And when it became Pulse, it was um, a sister's tribute to her brother. Uh, her brother, the, the just tight-knit Ita- Italian Catholic family. 
Um, when he came out, their their family had to sort of confront sort of what did their faith tell them about their family. Over time, they embraced him, loved him. He unfortunately died of AIDS. And this was her commitment, her tribute to him was Pulse. Pulse is one of several amazing gay nightclubs in, in Orlando. And it just horrifically happens to also have happened on um, Latin night, which means the there were a, um, and Latin night at Pulse um, tends to skew younger than their other nights. And so th- that's why the names and the ages are just so tragically young. Um, so for me, it's, it's a doubly marginalized group. Um, I think 24 of them were Puerto Rican. Um, so it complicates the issues of when we have people that so much of normative white culture tries to marginalize doubly, both for the color of their skin, the language they speak, and then who they love and who they are. And so that that's part of how I know Pulse, and that's part of how I know that area. Um, also grateful that Three blocks north of Pulse is Orlando Regional Medical Center, which is a level one trauma center. And that's where um, so many of the victims were taken. Um, I believe I believe they've done 44 surgeries in the last two days. Wow. Um, next door to that hospital is the children's hospital that I served for six years. So, yeah, I've been communicating with lots of friends who are exhausted. So, yeah, they they appreciate all the prayers, the well wishes, the thoughts, the um, candlelight vigils that are going around the globe. It's just awful, and it will be awful for a long time. Um, Orlando has had um, just three tragic events happen this week. Of course, this unspeakable slaughter of innocence that, that was at the Pulse nightclub. But um, the night before, there was also another shooting um, at a concert. Um, the Christina Grimey from The Voice was shot and killed. And just a day later, this happened. And then just last night, as, we, as we've talked about, we're, we're talking just days after this tragedy. Um, just last night, Tuesday, a toddler was playing near some water um, at a Disney resort. And an alligator um, dragged the toddler away. And So it, it just is a season where people are like, um, God, where are you? Um, this hurts. Um, the world seems more than just upside down. It seems horrifically cruel and unjust and absurd. And um, if there is a God, then why why'd you take a nap is kind of my sense of life right now. Hmm. Yeah, I, I didn't know the story, Bentley, about the um, what, how Pulse came to be. I didn't know that it was a tribute to... Oh, that's, and, and I, I don't th- think tribute's a wrong word. Um, she, I mean, she called it pulse because she, um, his heartbeat, she wanted his passion to live on. Wow. Oh, so, man. um, so it's pulse for that very reason. It's not just, it, you know, it has the great double meaning of the pulse of a nightclub, um, the beat, the rhythm, the dancing, but it's, um, it's his heartbeat. As as far as I'm aware, none of the, th- the three of us on this conversation are out as gay. We're not not publicly out. So the three of us pass as cisgender and heterosexual. I've talked to some people in some circles or seen some rhetoric. Yes, people 
would recognize that this is a slaughter of, of innocence, Bentley, like you said, but I think that there is also a notion that, you know, these these mostly young men were out, you know, being debaucherous or something. Like a nightclub is a place where bad things happen or they're not quite that innocent. Or there was a I saw a quote from a pastor and I don't even want to know who this was or where this was, but I saw the headline come up that this pastor was saying things like these, these men, young men deserve to be executed, but by the, by a, by a righteous government, not by a terrorist, you know? So I, I think from all of my queer friends and, and a lot of the reading that I've been doing, most people don't understand that gay nightclubs are some of the only safe spaces where they can breathe and be without fear. Like, so you have to, I think we all have to understand those of us who are, um, who are straight or, or, you know, cisgendered, what, what it means to have that idea violated and how traumatizing and, and re-traumatizing that is for so many millions of people. Um, the the immensity of that and i i've i've noticed in my friends signs of trauma si- signals coming out you know that this brings up th- any sense of safety that these communities have managed to build has been ripped out from underneath their feet by this so that's why the immensity of this thing feels so huge for a lot of us i have a friend who is gay and he was not out in college and he said he used to be terrified of falling asleep because he was afraid that his college roommates would hear him having a gay dream and he would out himself in his sleep. So to understand the type of, of fear that a lot of gay people have had to live in because we live in a society that that horrifically punishes gay people. I mean, it, hopefully things are getting better, but sometimes it feels like they're getting worse. The amount of fear that a lot of gay people have lived with most of their lives is extraordinary and and incomprehensible. So that needs to be said, I think, right out front that we are not speaking for gay communities. We and and that's been a conversation that we've been having before this recording. And that I Bentley, you said this best yesterday. I come at it from a few angles. One of it is um, as a spiritual care provider, as a chaplain, when we take care of people, you're always thinking about who is the primary person that this is their suffering. And who is the secondary? And there's almost like concentric circles. And I, I love the phrase, and it was is a, of, you know, you dump out, you don't dump in. Meaning that, you know, we all have our grief, but let's not throw our grief on top of the people whose, this is really an attack on their community. And so the I say that- closest to the epicenter of the thing exists. that happened. Exactly. And so while Orlando is definitely the physical location of the epicenter, Pulse is undeniably a gay nightclub. It was designed to create awareness of LGBT, queer, two-spirit people, gender non-conforming people, um, give them space and build awareness in the community. To not name that does disservice, dishonors their lives. I, I think many spiritual traditions, not not all, but many of our main spiritual traditions, are complicit in creating homophobic and just internalized homophobia, the shame that people live about who they are and struggling to find and self-affirm and find communities of affirmation. And I just really stumbled away from what I was thinking about. But the importance to me 
um, right now is, is yeah, this, this is an attack on these people were targeted because they are because of who they are and who they love. And the identities, the intersection of who they are was they were black and brown bodies, mostly Latino, Hispanic, Latinx, um, Latino, all those words. And for me, it's important to name that how people self-identify is how we, we should identify with them. Um, we should honor how people self-identify. If I tell you my name is Bentley, please don't call me Bill or Billy. A thing that's been frustrating for me is so many people are like, now's not the time for politics. And people are saying, you know, to name that it's this group and not just a terrorist attack on everybody. And you're just bringing politics into it. it frustrates me because these young people, their whole lives have been politicized. Um, they were, you know, probably harassed for police for their documentation. They were harassed um, in public spaces for um, being femme or being butch or being queer or not being masculine enough or not being feminine enough. And so they found this safe space to be themselves. And so for me, um, it's one of the reasons why it's hard to talk about this is that's not my experience of Orlando. I, I know it's real, but that's, I was never the victim of that level of homophobia and spiritual violence. Um, so what do I do as a person who wants to celebrate the lives of all of God's children? For me, it's a question of privilege. Um, I have great privilege, one, to be an ordained minister, two, to be white, three, to be cisgendered. All of these privileges that are unearned that society has given me. Um, and so the fact that you all have given me a microphone is another privilege. And so I, I don't want to speak for gay people. I think at this time right now, um, it's important for us who aren't the targets of this hate to not make this tragedy about us. This tragedy hurts us. Sure. And that's because of our shared humanity. Um, it scares us. It reminds us of our, of our vulnerability. But this tragedy is not about us. I think the second step is to listen to other people who, this, who were the targets of this. The third is to amplify those voices that have been marginalized. And so um, one of the ways that I, I think about this is, yes, I'm from Orlando. And so I have a deep connection to the physical geography of that place. And I was explaining that a little bit earlier. But um, there's a, a queer Latino theologian, uh, Vincent Cervantes, who wrote a blog that was picked up by um, religion dispatches called Sacred Geography. And um, that, that helped me think through that of gay nightclubs frequently were the temples, the churches, the cathedrals for people who didn't have communities that loved and embraced their whole lives. And um, I want to just read a couple paragraphs of, um, uh, from that article about sacred geography. Um, Surely gay nightclubs become religious spaces amongst, amidst the communitas of queer bodies inhabiting space together in kinship. But our people, Latinos and Latin Americans, have a long history of creating ceremonial centers when our homes become violent landscapes. And just 
So Latino queer spaces were always spaces of healing, migratory spaces we journeyed to, to be in solidarity with one another in our shared pain and suffering, but also in our shared joy and triumph. We anointed one another with affirmation and laughter. We created fellowship and communion because too many of us had traversed dangerous landscapes just to get there in the first place. The spirit lived and carried through each and every one of us. We emerged from the shadows. We worshiped and we worshiped to survive and to be storytellers about our journeys. These are our sacred spaces. Mm, really good thoughts. I, Moni, you had mentioned how surprised you were about not knowing the, the history of, of the Pulse nightclub. And I was the same way. That was the first thing that popped into my head. And I'm sitting here thinking about all these things that tend to happen and how quickly it becomes about the perpetrators, the oppressors, whatever word we want to attach on the people that are, that are causing these things and how quickly the dialogue and the focus and the shift moves from not only the immediate victims, but like we're talking about here, the ripple effect of victims where now that affects millions of queer people and LGBTQ community um, across the country for feeling like now where is is my safe place going to be the next place to be attacked and i think I think on both ends of the fence we have a tendency to n- not only when people feel as though they 're marginalized, someone has come in and assumed their power onto them, but a lot of the times the the quote unquote other side of it is we come in and we assume what the solution is for that in in you know under the banner of freedom and just as much as it is important to fix a problem i think it's just as important if not more to create a place where the people who are the most suffering from that problem have a voice to speak and share their stories and and we're not going to know what's really going on until we hear those stories yeah and how can we look for solutions as a country until we know what's going on first i mean we, I think we have a, a tendency to do that. If I can just speak in like gross generalizations, but like as a country, as a, as a, as a massive culture, we tend to rush in and try to fix things before we have understanding. I mean, this could go yeah. for, you know, over, anything from overseas conflicts to, you know, systems reform here, you know, there, there tends to be a quickness. So I think I, I've been trying to hang back. I've not been doing very well at it. I've posted a couple of things on Facebook that I've been kind of inflammatory because I'm grieving just like everybody else. And mm. I've gotten some real pushback from people in, you know, my more conservative friends or whatever. But, uh, you know, I, I think the complexity of this attack is really, has really been weighing on me. I don't, I think it's hard to know how to feel about it because, you know, and, and this episode where I don't think we're, we're trying to actually look into the nooks and crannies of the case. We're actually just trying to figure out how to lament and be an ally, but not a toxic ally, like a true person who stands in solidarity with these communities and recognize our place and the power that we should or should not wield, right? We're trying to just get a handle on how to, how to approach and how to be um, first, you know, because the last thing we want to do in these situations is cause more damage by, by rushing in. Um, that said, I, I have, and, and I've, I was talking to us, a straight friend of mine yesterday who said, I want so deeply to help, but I'm hearing two really distinct messages from queer communities. And these might both be true. And we might just have to sit in the discomfort of this. But on one hand, queer communities are saying, where are you straight people stand up for us? On the other hand, 
queer, I, and I've seen both of this too. On the other hand, queer communities are saying, leave us alone, let us bury our dead and don't try to speak for us and don't get involved and leave us alone. So, you know, I think the fact that that makes us uncomfortable and like, I don't think we should have a, a tendency to even try to resolve that. We should sit in that discomfort and recognize the powers at play yeah. when we feel that discomfort and, and why having those two distinct messages can both be equally true and represent such a sordid history of violence against gay people in this country. Um, but the added complexity though, and, and this is something that will become, I think a really long conversation that the offender was himself dappled in queer and gay communities and used grinder allegedly and was queer himself as far as we can tell from you know it had a lot of other issues going on but um th there's a there's an el an added element and an added terror of internalized violence at play here that it is again i don't want to say incomprehensible too much because i th i don't think any suffering is beyond the reach of other human connection and fellow feeling is really dangerous uh, but I also think it can be so easily co-opt if you presume to know or presume to understand. So how do we sit with just a deep sense of listening without being impositional, right, in these times and to say we recognize just how complicated this is and, and how complicated this is for, for queer communities themselves. Um, there have been tons of people coming out as gay as a result of this attack, which I think is fascinating that people are finally either finding the courage or as a a mode of uh resistance of radical resistance to to say no i am i also identify and i i don't think we can prescribe anything in this moment i guess is what all i'm trying to say so bentley you mentioned earlier along with what mona was just saying this this attention of 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 balancing from the outside from from us from the outside is balancing this idea of recognizing that we have this privilege and knowing where to place our voice and how to insert ourselves or not insert ourselves into a certain situation um you had mentioned something to us before before we started recording about that idea of privilege um using uh, habakkuk as a, as an example and i really it really resonated with me and i was wondering if you you kind of share with share us that again and then kind of expand on what can we do now with these things that that mona's talking about and i'm talking about and how do we deal with that tension of of being uncomfortable with the situation in general and not knowing and not having any answers. And then at the other end, not knowing where, where our place is in, in the greater scheme of it. Yeah. So, um, Habakkuk is, um, one of my favorite books. It's tucked in, um, just a couple pages towards the end of the Hebrew Bible. It's, um, three chapters long and it's a lament. And, you know, the, the first chapter is really, um, the prophet letting God have it. It starts, O oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and you will not listen, or cry to you violence, and you will not save. And then the second chapter is God kind of giving the charge back to the people of, are you really living up to this covenant bargain? And then um, the third chapter is how that resolves. I'm not going to talk about that as much. But the third verse of this, the first chapter is really telling to me. Um, it says, still talking to God, still talking to Yahweh. Why do you make me see wrongdoing and look at trouble? Um, and that, that hits me in a number of ways. Like right now, I'm, I'm just sick of TV. I'm sick of Facebook. I'm sick of the news. I'm sick of yet another tragedy. 
I'm sick of yet another mass shooting. I'm sick. Like, why do you make me look at this, God? Um, and what's interesting about that phrase of make me is um, the verb really is the causative. Make me see. It's what in Hebrew, you know, for the Hebrew geeks out there, it is the hiffle verb form, which means God is making the prophet look at this injustice, which means he's not actually a victim of the injustice. He's a witness of the injustice. And so Habakkuk is speaking from a place of privilege. So the lament that Habakkuk gives is actually a great starting place for us, is we can lift up the injustice that um, marginalized communities face on a day-to-day basis, the heterosexism, the violence. We, we can name these things. Um, in order to be able to name those things, we have to listen to a lot of people. No community is monolithic. And so, yes, of course, we're getting different messages. So we have to listen. We really have to do our homework. And it is no one's job to do our homework for us. So this isn't the time that you call up your one queer friend and say, tell me about what it means to be queer. Um, There are plenty of blogs. There are plenty of other spaces. And if someone is generous enough to share their story with you, know what a sacred privilege that is and listen. Listen hard. Then, I mean, we use our platform to step up, to speak out and say, this is happening. But once we step up, we also then step back. We we have the privilege, I, I as a white male have privilege to take the microphone at almost any time. Um, my job then is to step up and then step back and give the microphone to the, the people that are marginalized and help amplify their voices that aren't being heard and really have people speak for themselves. Um, and so for me, that's, that's the thing I try to do. I stumble and fail at it all the time. I make mistakes. I think we also sort of hamstring ourselves by thinking we're going to do this perfectly. I fortunately have great friends who call me out on my racism, my sexism, my cisgender privilege. I I have those friends that speak into my life. I'm grateful for them. And I, I apologize and ask for forgiveness. And I think that's a posture of humility that's needed right now. One of the other blogs that really has spoken to me right now is um, the the statement that the Black Lives Matter movement posted. True to them, you know, they, they did some really great stuff of it's both in English and um, Spanish. And I think for me personally, as someone from Orlando, it's important to remember that Black Lives Matter started as a hashtag for Trayvon Martin, um, who was murdered in Sanford, which is just north of Orlando. It, for whatever reason, that feels like it, they they have things to say about this. And Black Lives Matter, um, two of the founders are do identify as queer. Um, so it's, it is about all lives mattering. For them, the most powerful line for me was name, they named, they lifted up so much of the intersectionality and complexity of this, that we are talking about immigrant bias. We're talking about Islamophobia. We're talking about Um, racism. We're talking about colonialism. We're talking about all of these things at once. And for them, they they really are lifting up, you know, we're not going to use this tragedy to justify Islamophobia 
or let people use their um, this tragedy to ignore their homophobia. And so for me, privilege also is um, very much about looking within and critiquing myself. A professor and mentor who um, very sadly passed away from cancer in January, the Reverend Dr. James Noel, African-American professor of um, modern uh, Christian histories at um, my seminary, my alma mater, he once said in a joke, but very seriously, he's like, you have to be willing to critique your own ass. Um, and I think it's important that we of privilege begin to critique ourselves. And the four things that Black Lives Matter lifted up is th- the enemy for all of these things is the same. It's still white supremacy. It's still patriarchy. It's still capitalism. And it's still militarism. Yeah, the the enemy never changes. The debates might change and the issues might seem to change and make that seem like quicksand, some of these arguments. But you're you're right, the, the hyper-masculinity that's embedded in all of that. I've I've talked about being a feminist and, and studying feminist theology a lot on this show. And I think that's great. But I think there's ways in which feminism can't address hypermasculinity, like the people who need to address it. And this is going exactly along with what you're saying, Bentley, are the people who have historically owned it, who have that power. And, and I know the word privilege gets a lot of people increasingly perturbed these days. I understand that. Um, so, so going, going back, back to privilege, privilege what, what privilege means, it doesn't mean that those power dynamics ought to be the case. It doesn't mean that you're better than or that, that someone's, someone's worse than you. It, it really means that, that you have the same ability to affect change in the world that, that all people ought to have, but only a few people have it. Right? right? That's, that's, a, that's, that's my working definition of privilege. Other people might say other ways. Um, so, so it really, I think the, the word privilege is very misleading because it sounds like special. I, I, I actually don't like the word at all. It sounds like you're special. And you're, you're, you're kind, kind of always special. Um, but, but actually, it's something that you have to get, get rid of, of. It, it, to, it, to, to the, the best degree, degree that you can. And you can't get rid of it as an individual. individual. You need a whole community. You need to address whole structures to get rid of it. So anyway, all to say, I'm, I'm calling for all of the straight cisgender men listening to this right now. We need you guys to take this on. Hypermasculinity, like, like all these other communities, these marginalized or fringe communities or whatever, can talk about this until we're blue in the face, but until cis straight men take on hypermasculinity, this shit ain't going away. Like the locus of control is with cis straight men. So I'm begging you guys, and and I know don't drop white. It it is about white whiteness. It is about I, you know, I, I agree with you. The word privilege has become loaded and fraught with so much baggage, and it, it is a troublesome word. At the same time, I think it should trouble us. So I, 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 I'm, not, I'm not certain what the, the substitute term would be. We haven't come up with one as far as we know. I mean, and, and, and personally, I think the empire would co-opt that, and suddenly that would be the bad word. Yeah. I've referred already to scripture once. Part of the reason is um, I'm grateful for the evangelicals that raised me to read scripture and and love it and learn it. And so um, scripture is the place I turn to at broken times. 
I read scripture probably differently. Well, not probably, definitely. Um, but I still read it. And so, I mean, I, I still like the Ephesians 6 passage of it's not against flesh and blood, but powers and principalities that, that this struggle is with. There are forces at play that do divide, and it's to preserve power and resources for a few and then create scarcity for a lot of marginalized communities, and then they are pitted against each other to navigate scarce resources. And so that's why you, you see marginalized communities attacking each other. And that's why I love Black Lives Matter saying, no, this, this tragedy is not going to be a case to promote Islamophobia. And then Muslims coming out and declaring their solidarity for queer communities. I think people are waking up and, and they're, they're done with this white supremacist patriarchal narrative and its hangover. You know, and I've seen a lot of people, I mean, Trump has been big on this bandwagon of like, we need to keep the, you know, Muslims out. Um, But really, this, the offender, I I can't even speak his name without feeling viscerally angry. So the offender of the attacks that we're talking about, he loosely identified as, please, for those listening, like, please speak the facts into this case for those of us for those who come from communities where they just want to stir up anti-muslim sentiment please like know know the facts of this case but this guy pledged his allegiance to isis and two other groups that are fundamentally at odds at each other with each other he didn't know anything about islam he didn't. He, he was not a practicing Muslim. He worshiped guns and violence. He worked in the U.S. Corrections Department. He, he actively like worked in juvenile detentions and like beat people. He beat his wife. He, he, he was not in any sense of the word a practicing Muslim at all. He wasn't. I mean, he, he, he said he was, but he, his family says he wasn't. He was a very disturbed human being. So to say that this guy represents Islam is incredibly hurtful. And please stop saying that. <laughs> Sure. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I agree. I echo that. I mean, this month is Ramadan. A, a devout Muslim would have been at home because in a couple of hours, they would have been needing to wake up to have breakfast before sunrise and get up for prayers. That, you know, a devout Muslim, that, that's just not where they would be. Um, this is Ramadan. It's a holy month. It's a month of fasting, but it's a, a, it's a month of work, fasting to get control of our passions so that we're not ruled by our passions. Um, so yeah, it's, it's an anathema to say, to put him up as radical Muslim. And that term freaks me out because radical um, etymologically means root. And so it's making it sound like Islam at its root is violent. Islam at its root, root is peace. I encounter practicing radical Muslims all the day, all the time, and I, I love them. They're beautiful people. Um, they're beautiful, devout people that inspire me to live my faith with more integrity. But I, I think, you know, I, I appreciated what you were saying earlier about the perpetrator of, um, and I'm not sure if this was in the podcast or just earlier, of the importance of not just allowing us to make the perpetrator evil. He was, he was a troubled human being. He was a second-generation American, Afghani-American. So when we talk about Afghanistan and all of the, the problems that have been going over there and how it's been a pawn um, in geopolitical warfare for probably centuries, but certainly my whole lifetime. I mean, I, I can remember 
the Soviet Union and the United States in the early 80s being there um, and, and working out their Cold War dynamics on Afghan culture. And that's roughly when their, his family migrated here. He was far more acculturated to Western masculinity and Western understandings of what it means to be male. And we look at the selfies of him and he's wearing an NYPD shirt. He wanted to be a Western guy, but the West would never accept him because he was an Afghani. And so, I mean, for me, this these calls to just suddenly claim himself as part of ISIS is really a desperate, I want to have a community. I'm not sure if he was queer. I'm not sure. It definitely sounds like he was confused about a lot of things. He was deeply troubled and conflicted. He was a perpetrator of domestic violence. It also sounds like he had bipolar condition. Um, so again, it's the intersectionality of we make mental health um, the, the scapegoat then. So there, there's just so much there. And for me, all of that then still points the figure back to toxic masculinity, patriarchy, white supremacy, militarism. And I skipped over capitalism that time because, um, you know, a quote I read recently was to understand any problem, look at who profits from it, not who's suffering. And, and that definitely switches our conversation because we've been talking so much about the lives that were lost. But I think, you know, when we begin thinking maybe in future episodes about what do we do, we then begin to turn our gaze at who is profiting by privileging certain people at the expense of others. Those are great points, Bentley. We, and we just did an episode on, um, we, we've done a couple episodes on economics and it would be interesting to get your perspective on those things. That could be a whole nother conversation. Gun control control could be a whole nother conversation. Um, pitting marginalized groups against each other. Again, an entire conversation, but it's hard for me to, you know, I think in these moments we look for locations of blame, right? We want to, we want to understand. So we blame, we blame, right? And we blame the offender because he's the offender. And that's implicit in what it means to be an offender. Um, it seems to me though, that, I mean, I guess the question I have is how much responsibility do we put on this individual versus the culture that this individual lives in that encourages those proclivities to go out of control, like, like again, being an abuser, being hyper-masculine, worshiping violence and guns and all of the above. Um, it, but, but a culture that, that, that encourages and actually enables by allowing that person to get guns and allowing folks like him to get guns. I mean, how, how, who, who's responsible, you know, are, are both responsible or are we, I don't know. I think I think the answer is yes. And thank you for challenging me. I wasn't trying to let this offender off the hook. He he committed evil. I and didn't hear me, you saying that. I I was just something I've been grappling yeah. with. No, he and so I mean he quite literally pulled the trigger. Um but yes, there's he didn't make the gun. He didn't make the bullets. So I mean there there's that for, for, phenomenon. He didn't create a club that was a safe place for people to go because they're marginalized from other communities. So the, the context for how all of this occurred, he didn't create. Um, and the forces that put this into play, he was an actor in it and he had agency. 
And I, I want to hold him responsible for that agency and that misuse of it and abuse of it and just tragic consequences. And because we also have agency, I don't want to leave us with hopelessness. We have agency, and which means there are things we can do so that that context isn't always true. We, we can change a culture of toxic masculinity, of white supremacy, of heteronormativity. We, 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 can, we can. And it's, I mean, it's changed in my lifetime. And as you said earlier, sometimes it seems like it's getting better. Sometimes it seems like it, it's getting worse. And in some ways, yes, both of those are true. And I also want to tack onto this conversation, and maybe I'm not the person to say this, but I'm going to say it anyway. First of all, I so deeply appreciate my cis, straight, white male friends who are willing to talk about toxic masculinity and call it out. You have no idea how healing it is just to hear those words come out of your mouth. Second of all, I want to say to those listening who are still uncomfortable with those phrases, we're not saying males are bad or men are bad intrinsically. In fact, toxic masculinity would have us believe that. Like, I, I think it's an utter corruption of what men should be allowed to be without the fear of being called a fag, without the fear of being beat up because they walk with a swish in their hips. Like, Toxic masculinity hurts men before it hurts anybody else. And so I, I'll, I, I will say the following, that men, you are not your masculinity. You're not. You're so much more than that. That is a, a twisting of what you have the right to be and to become. And if you need to hear that from me and from women or from whoever, I don't want to turn this conversation into just a gender thing because you're right, Bentley, this is an intersectional. And by intersectionality, we've been using that word and we've used it in the past, but just to re-explain it, it means the the intersection of many forms of suffering and oppression that overlap and almost become their new own thing in the complexity of it. You can't just talk about, in this particular case, you can't just talk about queer bodies or gay bodies and gay gay people or people of color, but it's both at the same time. That's intersectionality. And it's a really helpful word to understand when you get almost a perfect storm of, of oppression and violence. So anyway, I, I'm, I'm thankful for this conversation and I don't want to make it just about gender, but I think to, for me and the, the things that I'm seeing in this toxic masculinity is, is the, the key of the offense that's, that's, that's happened, that the key of the, the evil that happened. Um, and, and, and a lot of it for me is the worship of guns and the worship of violence. And it makes me want to weep, you know, that I have to live in a country that worships violence. What an awful, what a God awful notion. What a God freaking awful notion. I can't drop an F bomb. That's like what I want to, I want to use the strongest language possible right now that we live in a country that not only worships violence, but fears even the worship of our violence. It's just completely sick. And, and the fact that, you know, I, I have a, a one-year-old nephew who I'm afraid for growing up in this world. That's, we don't have to, we don't have to live like that. <laughs> I don't know how else to say it. We don't have to live like that. that that's the hope. I Ugh. mean, that's, that's what our, to me, that's what my faith tells me is there is other ways of being. And as a person of faith, I, I believe God wants a different way of being for us and is inviting us to partner with God in beginning to live into that. I thank you for 
just naming, you know, we're, we're not our masculinity. That's healing for me. For me, uh, it, it also sprung a different word, and people have problems with this word too, but it's about, instead of privilege, talking about power. For me, there's power over marginalized groups, like groups that get oppressed, and then there's power for groups that get privileged, and and that's kind of why privilege is a helpful word to me. But the thing that you were just lifting up is the power from, that these powers, these forces actually get internalized. And so a queer person might have internalized homophobia. A woman might have internalized sexism. A person of color might have internalized racism. As a white male, I often think my voice really is important. I I have internalized superiority. And I have this construct of what I'm supposed to be in the world, this masculine ideal that I'm trying to live up to, that I have to resist all the time. And because of that divide, both from my core nature, because for me, this, these powers distort who we are, who we were meant to be, how God wants us to be in relationship with one another. And so these powers just alienate the beloved community from being able to enact. And so that's why every time we have these conversations, we are living into the dream of the beloved community. Uh, that's, that's an interesting way to think about it, that all of these things together kind of play into a, even an even larger evil that that prevents us from right relationship. You know, if you believe in a cosmic sense of right to the degree that the world ought to be a place of love, you know, then this stuff like this, these isolated incidences are not isolated incidences. They play into a larger, you know, global or universal sense of preventing us from being who we could be to each other. I never thought about it that way. I don't know if that's a super profound thought, but that's kind of, um, it adds a layer of complexity for me, I guess. To me, um, where I, I got that was um, the process theologian uh, Marjorie Sue Hockey, uh, professor emeritus at Claremont. Um, when she started talking about what is a process understanding of sin, um, she talks about how we all, because of the interconnectedness of creation of the whole world, we're caught up and inherent inherit the web of sin that's already occurred before us. And so to me, that's corporate sin. And that's what we're talking about, sexism and racism. She then says, when you choose, choose, like we have choice, we have agency. When you choose to participate in it, she calls it actually giving assent to the demonic. That we begin to say, yeah, I, I have no choice. I, I'm going to just participate in the status quo. And continuing to perpetuate the downward spiral of violence and shame. Um, that's ascent to the demonic. And so to me, you know, I, you know, the, the perpetrator wasn't inspired by ISIS. He gave demonic assent. He gave a, he gave his assent to the demonic. That that's just kind of how I'm thinking about it. So as we um, kind of wrap things up, um, I'm wondering. Uh, with what we talked about in the beginning, as far as this uh, large people group feeling as though they have they've experienced a lot loss of safety. As someone who who works as a chaplain, you've probably experienced a myriad of different tragedies in the lives of people from 
diverse group of, of people types and people groups, uh, what are what are some takeaways that you would give someone to to kind of move forward and try to reestablish some kind of shelter or safety again after feeling so vulnerable? That's a great question, and um, thank you for bringing us back to the lives that were lost, um, the mourning that needs to be done right now, um, the grief that is real and present. Be gentle to yourself and others. Um, grief is real. You know, I hate the cliches. Time doesn't heal all wounds. Doing the hard work of grieving begins to mend shattered hearts. Trauma is not a wound that suddenly heals over and scabs. It, it's, it's an open wound for a long, long time. Obviously, in this case, very literally, but I mean, definitely psychically and spiritually as well. And so I, I don't have advice for the people who've actually are the primary victims of this trauma. You know, I think for those of us and the first responders, the and all the way down to those of us who are watching it on the news, give yourself breaks from it. And when you feel yourself like getting anxious and losing it, ground yourself in whatever practices ground you. And it can be as simple as becoming aware of your breath. How are you breathing in this moment? Becoming aware of the ground that's beneath your feet. Um, becoming aware, um, something that I do when after really hard events in the hospital, um, we have debriefings. And in the immediate one, we aren't there to process the event. We're really there to just stabilize the, the trauma. And, just, and so we don't actually revisit the events that happen because that can re-traumatize someone. So instead, we talk about if someone's getting short of breath, we invite them to, to name three things in the room to really orient yourself to your time and space. So it's like, remember you're a body. Remember that you are on this earth. Go outside, feel the grass, feel the sunshine, feel the wind. Remember that in spite of the absurdity and the tragedy and the horror, creation is still basically good. And it's awful. At the same time, it's horrific. And but to remember that at its basic level, there's food to eat for most of us. And that begins to motivate. So what do I do for about the people that there aren't food for? But to reground yourself in the idea that at this moment, my life is not in jeopardy. Because that's what trauma tells you. And, and the actual trauma experience, your life is in jeopardy. Um, so to get to a space where you realize I'm not traumatized, so that you can get out of like, the anxiety that floods floods you to flight, fight, fight, or freeze, you know, so breathe, get into your body and begin to realize, okay, I, I have some agency here. There are things I can do. Um, the serenity prayer is still very powerful for me, you know, help me to realize there's things I can't change. Help me to realize the things that I can give me the courage to face those things. That's actually still really helpful for me. There are things we can do. We have agency. We aren't as powerful as we wish, um, but together we are more powerful than we dare imagine. That's really helpful, Bentley. Thank you. You know, and as you were talking, I was kind of doing the exercises as you were explaining them myself and realized that I'm dissoci I've been dissociated the last few days, kind of just in a, a fog, you know, I, and I'm, you know, so to recognize the effects of that on on our own persons first is, um, 
yeah, bringing bringing us back. That's very good. Um, I, I would, this is changing the direction a little bit, but I know we're wrapping up. Um, I want to say to those who are listening, who are queer, gay, of color, um, who find themselves um, feeling especially targeted, targeted or traumatized, I want to say that you are loved. You are loved. And I, I've heard some critique of the phrase that's going around. Love is love is love is love. Um, my friend Nathan, who was on the show early when we first started talking about being a queer Christian, um, shared something on Facebook that that was a very frustrating thing to hear because queer love is not like straight love. It is incredible. It is not, it, it's so taboo still that it, you can't, compare the two or presume to know that you can compare the two. But I want to say that you are loved in the way that you are with no changes required. You know, if you need to hear someone's voice saying that, then rewind this recording right now and hear me say, you are loved. You are absolutely loved. And even if you don't feel loved right now, even if you feel like your life has been politicized to the brink of feeling like you're being torn apart. You are loved. You deserve to exist in the world and you deserve to exist happily and in peace in the world. And we want that for you. And I don't know how to make that happen. I don't, I don't know how to make that happen, but uh, it's what I want for you, my friends. You know, I, I, I'm so moved to the point of speechless and almost tears, just, yeah, I, I want to shout from the rooftops of you are loved. You are, you are sacred. You are wonderfully and fearfully made. You were knit together in your mother's womb before the foundations of the earth. You are loved as you are. And I'm living with this tension of is love enough? I, I, I'm really struggling with this idea of love wins right now. Today, it doesn't feel like love wins. Today, it feels like love gets beat up. Love gets hurt. Um, love risks being trampled upon. Love can be tortured. And so to me, love wins is, I, I fear that it's another form of Christian triumphalism. But as I say that, and I say, you know, I'm not sure love wins. Because I think love goes in knowing that it's risking everything and risking everything, thinking it will probably lose and still keeps loving. And that's the pulse that keeps beating for me. Sotomayor Jr., 34 years old. Stanley Almodovar III, 23. Luis Omar Ocasio Capo, 20. Juan Ramon Guerrero, 22. Eric Ivan Ortiz Rivera, 36. Peter O. Gonzalez Cruz, 22. Luis S. 
Vielma, 22. K.J. Morris, 37. Eddie Yelmoduroy Justice, 30. Anthony Luis Loriano Disla, 25. Jean Carlos Mendez Perez, 35. Frankie Jimmy Jesus Velasquez, 50. Amanda Alivar, 25. Martin Benitez Torres, 33. Luis Daniel Wilson Leon, 37. Mercedes Marisol Flores, 26. Xavier Emmanuel Serrano Rosado, 35. Gilberto Ramon Silva Menendez, 25. Simon Adrian Carrillo Fernandez, 31. Oscar A. Aracena Montero, 26. Enrique L. Rios Jr., 25. Miguel Angel Honorato, 30. Javier George Reyes, 40. Joel Rayon Paniagua, 32. Jason Benjamin Josephat, 19. Corey James Connell, 21. Juan P. Rivera Velasquez, 37. Luis Daniel Conda, 39. Shane Evan Tomlinson, 33. Juan Chavez Martinez, 25. Daryl Roman Burt II, 29. Deonka Deidre Drayton, 32. Alejandro Barrios Martinez, 21. Gerald Arthur Wright, 31. Leroy Valentin Fernandez, 25. Tevin Eugene Crosby, 25. Jonathan Antonio Camuy Vega, 24. Jean C. Nieves Rodriguez, 27. Rodolfo Ayala Ayala, 33. Brenda Lee Marquez McCool, 49. Yilmari Rodriguez Sullivan, 24. Christopher Drew Lenonen, 32. Angel L. Candelario Padro, 28. Frank Hernandez Escalante, 27. Paul Terrell Henry, 41. Akira Monet Murray, 18. Christopher Joseph Sanfeliz, 24. Antonio David Brown, 29. Geraldo 
A. Ortiz Jimenez, 25.